Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or ccatkw at gmail.com. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Conflicts, difficulties, and indecision often arise between older adults and their children, among adult children caring for elderly parents, and with families making decisions about parental care issues related to aging. Elder mediation provides a safe, neutral setting for discussion and agreement where elder mediators help participants decide together how to deal with these issues. Today, my guest is Jeanette Toomey, a Virginia certified mediator, conflict resolution trainer, and founder of Mediate Virginia. She's going to talk about her work as an elder mediator and how elder mediation helps families successfully deal with challenges related to the transitions of aging. She'll also describe how conflict coaching improves difficult family conversations related to aging issues. So welcome, Jeanette, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Cheryl. It's great to be here. Okay, well, I always on my interviews like to get the basics and the understanding of the topic we're going to talk about. So explain to us, Jeanette, what is elder mediation and what's the goal? It's a method for resolving family conflict about aging issues. Uh, Think of it as an informal family meeting with an extra person, the mediator, who creates the best conditions for uh, their successful discussions. And I sort of mentioned in my uh, my intro about different possibilities, but be, help us understand a little bit more specifically, what are the kinds of issues, g- give us some examples of issues that elder mediators might handle. Okay, um, that number of issues is growing because uh, people are living longer Uh, They're having more time when adult children are involved in their lives and their decisions. There are a lot of choices, complex decisions. Uh, We're very mobile. We live far apart. Um, So some of the issues that are common are what kind of care plan uh, would be the best, Uh, how to arrange the funding of this stage of life, Uh, where to live, what compromises of independence will probably have to be made, what would be safe. Uh, Mobility, Uh, that's driving is uh, one of the activities that 
all of us who are drivers will hate to give up, and but there usually comes a time when we need to do that, and families often have difficult conversations about that. Uh, medical care choices, dividing uh, property uh, now or in the future, uh, end-of-life decisions, business successions. Those are uh, conflicts that or topics that are very common uh, when an older person is in uh, probably the last or later stage of life and family members want to or need to be involved. All right. So now we understand all of the types of issues. So you're the elder mediator. What is your role? And as the family members are trying to sort all this out, what what does that look like? What's what's your role, and, and how do you help these family members sort all of this out? Well, too often, um, family members know that they need to have these difficult conversations. They might attempt to uh, have them and find that they're not successful. And then the older person sort of sits on the sidelines and might suffer some harm because of that. So what a mediator does, think of the word mediate being in the middle. What a mediator does is enter that difficult conversation in an impartial way and gives the conversation some structure that really um, sort of promises uh, better interaction, better communication, better... um, negotiation. Mediators don't take sides. We don't make decisions. We don't give advice. As I said before, we create and maintain the best possible conditions for difficult conversations. So, number one, we make sure that people are comfortable, that it's a calm setting, that they know that the conversation is confidential, that they know the mediator will be impartial. And then we make sure that everyone's ideas are heard or given the opportunity to be heard. Um, What's important to each person is expressed. A range of options is identified. And then if the people at the table do reach terms of agreement, the mediator can record those in whatever way um, the family group prefers. And we're going to talk more about all of these facets that you just described um, in, in this interview, but I wanted to take one step back and have you explain, uh, in your case and in generally, what kind of education and training do elder mediators have? Well, you know, it's interesting, Cheryl, I find after 25 years of being a mediator and training mediators that it is a profession that attracts people with a certain set of personal skills. So I'll talk about the education in a minute, but first let me say that it seems that the people attracted to practice mediation are compassionate, encouraging, supportive, uh, polite, and respectful. 
uh, and very good at uh, organization and very good at maintaining a structure that everyone has agreed, agreed to. They're good listeners. Uh, they usually have good analytical skills. They can uh, summarize and feedback what people say. All of those personal skills really help to make a very good mediator. Now, in terms of education and background, mediators I have observed come mostly from the helping professions. Things like social work, um, psychology, therapy, uh, client-centered legal practices. Um, so with that kind of background, uh, they can take a 20-hour basic mediation course in facilitative mediation, how to uh, mediate, facilitate uh, group discussions. And then uh, they begin to specialize taking, um, con taking education, specialized training for elder mediation. Uh, in Virginia, we have a mediator certification program uh, that requires this kind of education and also continuing education in conflict resolution with an emphasis on ethics. So mediators are always sensitive to any attempts to any attempts at fraud or any kind of uh, abuse uh, because mediation would not be appropriate uh, if those factors were present. Well, that's very helpful. It helps us to understand that mediators can come from different uh, professions. So, so I want to get back to the actual elder mediation process. Who are the participants? And, and, and help us understand what is the process for deciding which family members will participate in the session? And is there a preparation for the members? Give us kind of an overview of how you prepare with the people who you're going to be involved with in elder mediation? Okay, those are good questions. Um, I always think uh, sort of my general guideline is that the people most involved in the dispute are the people who should be at the table. So the people who are most involved could be involved because they would be impacted by any decisions or because they would help carry out any decisions. So when I discuss with each potential family member about participating in mediation, I do it with an eye toward who is having the dispute. Um, so a lot of my work has been around caregiving, where adult siblings are the ones having an active dispute. Uh, no one disagrees, including the older person, about the need for family participation as a team uh, in uh, carrying out a care plan that works. No one disagrees with the need, but when they get down to what role are people going to play, who's going to pay for what, etc., that's where the, uh, the real conflicts arise. 
So in a case like that, um, I would probably um, try to encourage the adult siblings to sit at the table of mediation because they are the ones having the dispute. Now, I've also had a number of disputes that involve the older person or persons. For instance, and I'm not going to be able to give uh, very detailed descriptions of my cases because they are confidential, but I can give some uh, examples, uh, you know, that really uh, represent a lot of cases I've had. So think of a case where um, there's an aging parent and uh, there are a number of adult children and the parent and one of those children has uh, made an agreement that the parent is going to pay for a large addition uh, to the adult child's home and that that's where the parent will live uh, in retirement or in her later years. You can imagine in some families that other uh, adult children uh, might not agree with this approach. And uh, in a case like that, and in one particular case, I ended up with three generations of a family at the mediation table. So there was the uh, grandmother, the children, and several grandchildren who all had uh, their own perspective on what should happen. Uh, so that's an example of uh, an older person participating, and I've already described the situation where the dispute is mostly uh, between the, um, the adult siblings, in which case the older person might not want to participate. That person might want just to know that their children were on board and on the same wavelength as far as uh, a plan was concerned. As far as preparation is concerned, um, I try to talk to each person who's going to come to the mediation uh, in private, by phone or online, uh, before the mediation. Uh, and I give them some things to think about before they attend the mediation. Number one, what are the triggers that cause intense emotional reactions when you talk to your brothers and sisters? Try to be clear on that and think about how you can respond in a productive way to those triggers. Um, do some thinking in advance about what's really important to you. If you were king of the world, how would you design a care plan, for instance? This one is hard. I ask people to try to stand in the other person's shoes to think, what is it that they really need? What's their underlying concern? And then ask yourself, how far can I go in providing that? And then maybe the last thing is, um, you have two ears and one mouth for a reason, so prepare to listen a lot more than you talk. So those are some of the things that uh, I talk to prospective clients about. 
And what happens in those are excellent uh, ways to prepare. My goodness, um, uh, that's good advice, even if they weren't preparing for uh, a mediation <laughs> session, but uh, especially good. And to that point, Jeanette, what happens? What, what do you do if a family member opposes using a mediator? How, how do you handle that? Well, I hope you're getting, your audience is getting the idea that mediators really have the power to mediate, to improve the process of the conversation, not to um, demand who will be at the table. Mediation is voluntary. Uh, There may be people in the family that the mediator believes should be in on the conversation and participate. I have to make a judgment as a mediator about how important a reluctant person is. And I would certainly, uh, if I found in a discussion with someone uh, that they were reluctant to participate, I would certainly try to find out what their concerns were and see if I could uh, alleviate their concern. Uh, In some cases, I have had a situation where Um, let's say there were three siblings in a dispute about um, financing the level of care that their parent needed. And two of the siblings had been very involved in this and really were at the core of the active dispute. But the third one lived far away, sort of knew about the argument secondhand and really didn't see a need to participate. I've had several situations where that person has agreed to listen, sort of be a silent um, attendee of the mediation. And then somewhere near the end where uh, we were in the phase of uh, talking about realistic options, that person asked permission to participate and actually had some excellent ideas because they were they had been processing internally what they had heard and uh, really had uh, a good feel for what might really work uh, what might really be successful for their family team so uh, that's that's an example of sort of uh, you know how I would approach a reluctant person, and if it were a person who uh, really needed to be there because they were most actively involved in a conflict, uh, then mediation wouldn't occur because it's uh, a volunteer process and everyone, all the important stakeholders really need to be there. And have you found, Jeanette, that that sometime a family member will say, well, I'll just send a representative? Are there examples of, of that being the case? Well, yes. In my practice, as I say, most of my work has been with the adult siblings. Uh, when an older person is involved and I'm talking to them and other family members, I'm trying to make a determination about how much they want to participate. Uh, One thing that's overlooked sometimes is how harmful it can be to an older person to hear uh, their adult children having active disputes and sometimes 
using hostile language. Uh, and on the other hand, it's sometimes sort of a chilling effect uh, for an older person to be in on a conversation um, where the adult siblings really don't want to say things that um, that would impact an older person harmfully. So if, if an older person wants to participate, I am looking for their level of ability and their uh, how key they are to the the mediation and if whether they need a representative. Now the representative, I've had representatives, they have always been very helpful. Uh, they sort of range from the informal to the formal. Informal representatives might be a good friend, um, a uh, religious leader, um, someone they trust, all the way up to um, someone who holds their power of attorney, uh, to an attorney who uh, has, has, they have consulted with, uh, have a professional relationship with, and feel that they need uh, legal advice during the mediation. So uh, representatives are welcome. Again, I must stress that mediation is conducted at the consent of all the parties. So, for instance, if someone were planning to bring a representative, uh, they would need to make that known to the other participants, and I would get or ask for their consent before we would uh, bring that person into the meeting. Okay, well, let's. I'd like to turn a little bit in terms of the setting of elder mediation. Um, I'm making an assumption here, but obviously I want to hear from you. I'm assuming that prior to the pandemic, most often it was face-to-face, although maybe by telephone, so I'd like to hear more about how you conducted these sessions. But I'm also curious to know whether the pandemic has changed how elder mediation is conducted in your practice and those of your colleagues. Um, what would you tell us now in terms of what what the scenario is? Well, I'm so excited to talk about this. Um, so I have done elder mediation for about 10 years, and uh, I'm located in Vienna, Virginia, and Almost all of my mediations were done in person in a conference room uh, somewhere in the Washington metropolitan area. And this always sort of limited the number of cases because there were often people in the family who were far away and uh, just were not going to travel to be in person and also felt some sense of discomfort at the idea of, uh, of telephone mediation. Well, during the pandemic year, so many people learned how to communicate online through um, platforms like WebEx and Zoom and became very comfortable with it. And now, uh, 
I have a much broader reach to families that are uh, living all over the country and can come into the meeting through video conferencing or video conferencing where they just use the audio, turn off the video. So it has really expanded um, online elder mediation, and I am so happy about this because we are reaching uh, more people in a way that's comfortable for them. So the pandemic actually had a great benefit uh, for the work that I do because it sort of moved people beyond their um, their discomfort or their comfort level with um, with online communication. Sounds like the pandemic has made a difference in many people's lives, and uh, we're going to talk more about what actually goes on now uh, in the the mediation session after the break. But first of all, in case you tuned in late. Uh, we are talking with Jeanette Toomey, who is a Virginia certified mediator. She's also a conflict resolution trainer and the founder of Mediate Virginia. And you're listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org. Welcome back. Today we're talking with Jeanette Toomey, a Virginia certified mediator, a conflict resolution trainer, and founder of Mediate Virginia. And before the break, we talked about how Jeanette's practice, and I would imagine that of other elder mediators, has transitioned into more online um, mediation rather than face-to-face. So We started talking a little bit about benefits, but before we get into what happens during the mediation session, perhaps, Jeanette, you can elaborate a little bit more of what you are discovering insofar as benefits of online elder mediation. Sure. Well, I mentioned uh, that it really destroys the barrier of distance, so it's very easy for people to participate using their phones uh, or their computers or their iPads. They're really lower costs because of online mediation. Um, One of the lower costs is it reduces stress. When people are sitting in their own homes or own offices, or actually last week I had someone participate from his car, uh, they feel a familiarity and comfort that they might not feel if they had flown for five hours uh, to meet uh, with their family members. It's a quicker and, I would say, safer in some cases and more peaceful kind of mediation. Uh, sometimes when people have traveled long distances to come to uh, a mediation meeting, 
uh, their time is so valuable that they want to start in the morning and just stay there until they finish. 10, 12 hours. I've never agreed to mediate for that long, but uh, you can imagine how people's concentration and abilities decline uh, after that amount of time. Well, with uh, online mediation, we can just suspend the mediation and come back the next day or the next week uh, with no uh, really cost at all while people have time to think and and uh, consider and gather more information. So that's a great benefit. Another thing is we can read the reactions of people. We see all of their faces so clearly on the screen and uh, reading reactions of how someone is um, being affected by what someone else has said gives the mediator the idea that, uh, well, we should, you know, we should key on that topic and really explore that further because that seems to be something really important to several people. So that's an interesting uh, observation that I've made. And then also we can share screens so we can look at uh, documents, we can draft the uh, agreements that they reach right in real time on uh, in front of people and ask for feedback. So you can hear that I'm just very enthusiastic about this. It in, increases efficiency and uh, the effectiveness of family discussions. And that is a good segue into my next question about what what happens during the elder mediation session? Obviously, you conducted it maybe a certain way in a conference room. Now it's, as you described, a little different um, because you're do, using Zoom or something similar. Has that changed in terms of what happens? Like, do you ask questions and they respond? Or uh, tell us a, a little bit about how you conduct an elder mediation session. And and you, you also mentioned a little bit about how long the sessions are and how often they meet. Maybe it's, it's changing a little bit. So uh, enlighten us about what happens. Okay. Um, well, I'm going to describe maybe four phases of the mediation so people can really get a picture of the nuts and bolts. So if your family wants to mediate about a problem or set of problems, I'm going to contact each family member individually and I'm going to tell them about mediation and give them an opportunity to ask questions to make sure that they understand uh, what's going to happen. So that's one phase. When we're all together in the mediation room, which now can be um, online, virtual, we're going to first hear from each person in turn their perspective on the problem. What is the problem? And as you might imagine, people have uh, different perceptions of the problem. So, and, and also they may never have been able to describe their perspective in a way where they were not interrupted. So they can be promised they're not going to be interrupted, and they're going to get to describe the problem. So that is sort of the second phase, the storytelling. Then the mediator, 
who has been listening without interruption, tries to delve more deeply into what the issues are and what the major interests of the parties are. Sort of trying to dissolve that sense of this being a win-lose adversarial kind of setup. The mediator uses language in their summaries and in their description of the issues and the interests that are more neutral and take away, sort of wipe out any hostility uh, that might have been in language before. So that's the uh, third phase. Uh, So, so far it's the introduction, the storytelling, and then the clarifying issues and interest. And at that point, uh, the parties would ask each other questions if they wanted further explanations, and the mediator uh, could ask questions for clarification. Then the fourth phase is to actually look at what we've decided the problem is, look at what factors cumulatively uh, everyone wants involved in a good solution, and then we start brainstorming, looking at a wide range of possibilities how something might be resolved. So let's take a caregiving situation where um, at the onset some family members thought, Dad's fine by himself. You're uh, overreacting. Other family members thought Dad needed uh, to live in a retirement community where there was assisted living. Other family members might uh, think that Dad needs maybe a little bit of help with daily activities a couple of times a week. So uh, we would look at all the possibilities that people could come up with for combining uh, those interests into something that works for everybody, that's good enough for everybody. And usually it doesn't turn out to be one or the other exactly. Usually does turn out to be a combination of what people have thought of. So that is uh, almost the final stage is identifying those options and the ones that would actually be good enough for everyone to endorse and implement. And then lastly, um, depending upon the preference of the parties, of the family members, the mediator would record what their agreements are. Uh, Sometimes this is done just as a... um, an informal list of uh, sort of the duties that they've each has agreed to um, to take care of. Sometimes, uh, especially if they're going to be a need for legally binding agreements, the mediator will be asked to write a memorandum of understanding, which will then be transferred to uh, an attorney to put in legally binding uh, language. Mediators do not act as attorneys. Even though I am trained as an attorney, I wear a totally different hat when I mediate. So I would not draft uh, a legally binding agreement for the parties. So I hope that helps you understand the stages of the mediation.
and how it's voluntary, confidential, the mediator remains impartial, and it's really aimed at future problem solving. I usually sort of set a limit of two hours for mediation. I find with the online mediations, they're really shorter than that for some reason. Um, So I would say somewhere around an hour and a half. And if there need to be multiple sessions, uh, we have really a lot of options for when to set those up if we use the uh, online model. And so then based on what's going on, then amongst the whole group, you and the group, the family members would decide then how often you would continue to, to meet. Is that true, Jeanette? That's right. It's, it's always a voluntary process, and we make decisions uh, by uh, joint consent. It's joint decision-making. Okay. So I'm wondering, and I suspect as listeners are hearing how you're explaining this, what happens if a participant doesn't want to reveal certain information during a a session? How do you handle something like that? Well, this is sort of a um, sort of a subtle answer I'm going to give you. Um, There's some subtlety to it. One of the foundational principles, as I've mentioned, of mediation is that it's voluntary. So participants come to mediation because they want to, and they decide what to share with the group. And yes, they can withhold information. Maybe they don't want to describe some uh, terribly intense conversation that they've had with one of their siblings. Maybe they don't want yet to describe something that they might be willing to do to resolve this. Of course, I won't know the things that they're holding back, but if I have a sense that that they are not being completely forthcoming and um, that that withholding of information is really amounts to a lack of good faith, then I would have a separate session with that person and try to find out more, uh, first of all, if there was information that that they uh, realized might be helpful but they were not sharing, and I would ask uh, them if they would help me understand why they're holding that back. And sometimes I'm very satisfied that they are acting in good faith and that they are actually not sharing this information for a good reason. Uh, But if it's for a bad reason, (laughs) to try to deceive someone or uh, um, sort of not take responsibility for some action or something in the future, then uh, I'm going to conclude that uh, this is not an appropriate case for for mediation because uh, one of my ethical responsibilities is to uh, be alert to people who are not acting in good faith. So I hope that explains uh, sort of how I would approach um, a sense that someone was not sharing information that is relevant. To that point, I was also wondering if 
if you, as the mediator, notice that maybe there's a family member that's not participating very much, do you draw that person out? Or how do you react in terms of looking at the various members that are in the session? Well, and thank you for that question. Another uh, principle of mediation is balanced participation. So mediators are always paying attention to everyone in the room and their level of participation. Now, we recognize human beings are all different, and some people uh, process things more internally, and their participation, um, talking participation, might be less frequent than someone who processes what's going on externally, and they talk quite a bit, and they are processing while they talk. So we have to recognize those differences in style, um, and we have to um, really look for people who aren't participating at all or at such a low level that we are concerned that they uh, might not be agreeing with what's happening or they might not be understanding what's happening. So in a case like that, uh, before meeting separately with that person, I would, as you said, Cheryl, try to bring them out by being more deliberate, asking, uh, for instance, uh, Susan, do you have something to say about that? Or, uh, Susan, is that a topic that you have given much thought to? Or what are your thoughts about that? Uh, that's a more uh, sort of direct, deliberate way. And then if there were still no uh, sort of increase in participation, I would probably meet with the person separately and just explore a little bit about their um, involvement, how they felt about it, and if the process was, uh, you know, was working for them. And we might make some changes in the process. Uh, for instance, someone might say, well, my sisters are always interrupting me, so I don't get a chance to talk. Well, then I might be more... Uh, more deliberate about um, assuring uh, time to talk in turn without interruption. Okay, well, I want to make sure that I cover two other areas yet. Um, one related to the, the mediation process, and you mentioned it earlier as one of the segments of the overall um, activity, but talk a little bit more, Jeanette, about the process of, of recording and disseminating uh, the terms that are agreed to and, and what actually happens, what do you do? And to that point, I was going to ask another question. Are there any guarantees that these terms are going to be agreed to and honored by the participants? So help us understand a little bit more about what happens afterwards. Well, those are questions that... Uh almost all of my clients answer before they uh, really hear me talk in detail about mediation. So when a family group reaches a number of terms of agreement, in general, what I do is draft at their request a written memorandum of understanding. Now online, I can do a lot of this in their full view. Uh, usually, I finalize some details and transmit to them um, a copy for their final comments. Uh, and that's the process we go through to 
reach an actual final document that they can use uh, to implement their plan. Um, so that's normally uh, what occurs. Uh, some parties want to just sort of have a handshake, um, just know that they agreed and uh, sort of shy away from anything in writing. I try to encourage them to have a uh, simple uh, list of what they agreed to because once they disperse, uh, people start having different recollections of what what they actually uh, decided. So I really try to encourage something that's, that's in writing. Um, and if we're all meeting together, um, it sort of follows the same process. We do a draft while we're together. I do some uh, final editing uh, once they've dispersed and transmit that to them for comments and then actually produce a final draft. Now, there are no guarantees that um, the terms agreed to will be followed. And you might think that that's difficult for a mediator to say as they were, I'm describing the process, but it's really not because there have been a number of um, research projects to determine how compliant mediation participants are with the agreements that they reach. And the research has shown that somewhere around 70%, 70 to 80% of the um, agreements reached are complied with by the parties. So that's a, uh, and most of those have been done with uh, small claims court cases and more complex cases in court. Those. Uh, research projects, but it's a pretty good indication that if you participate in creating the solution, you have bought into it and you're going to really support its implementation. Have you found, Jeanette, that there are certain kinds of family situations that aren't conducive um, for elder mediation? Absolutely. Uh, as I said, our profession really follows a a uh, very strong ethical code in Virginia. Uh, Virginia has a standard of mediator ethics that certified mediators must um, follow. And in that is a section on appropriateness of mediation for the situation. So we will not mediate where there are indications of abuse, any allegations of physical or psychological abuse. Uh, we will not mediate when uh, any necessary party uh, appears uh, unable to, um, to participate in the mediation. Um, we will not uh, continue the mediation where we are unable to balance the participation uh, where the parties uh, will not conform to the structure and principles of mediation where people are given the opportunity to listen uh, and to be heard. So we are constantly on uh, the lookout for things like fraud and deception uh, and would cancel any mediation where those were suspected 
or would not begin a mediation where those were suspected. Okay. Well, I want to uh, leave elder mediation right now and go to another area that you are very much involved in with and trained to do, and that's conflict coaching. So talk about what is conflict coaching, when could it be used, and, and how does it differ from elder mediation? Well, conflict coaching is one-on-one, sort of make, helping people be more aware of their own behavior and how it contributes to um, sustaining uh, negative conflict behavior. So I'll give you an example that's sort of an accumulation of a number of uh, conflict coaching experiences I've had. Uh, So someone contacted me and said, I have arranged to meet with all of my siblings at an airport in a hotel conference room Uh, several months from now uh, because we need to iron out uh, what is going to happen with uh, our parents' uh, property that they own, with the business that they own, and how to put in place the kind of caregiving that they need now and will need in the future. So there was going to be a group of about seven people, and this person said, I know that I'm going to mess it up because I get so excited and upset discussing these uh, uh, these topics that I want to learn something about how to facilitate the meeting and how to not be part of the problem. So we met for three uh, coaching sessions, maybe 45 minutes to an hour long, And we talked about what examples he could give me of uh, things that would go wrong when he had tried to have these conversations before. Uh, And we walked through each one of them, each one of the situations, each one of his triggers, and talked about an alternate behavior that he could practice beforehand and that he could sort of make notes about that he could take into his uh, meeting with his siblings and his parents. And the feedback I got from that was very positive and uh, certainly um, resulted from his uh, education about conflict resolution skills, but also because of his own self-discipline and awareness. So that's an example of what uh, conflict coaching is. And is, does that happen often when you um, are in touch with families who are interested in mediation, that you make this available to people, or do is that sort of a separate activity that they come to you and they may not necessarily need mediation? I, I'm just trying to get a sense of when conflict coaching might occur as opposed to elder mediation, or might there be situations in which you do both? Thank you. I'd like to really clarify that. I would not give conflict coaching to someone who is participating in a mediation that I was conducting. Because, think about it, (laughs) if I'm conducting a mediation as an impartial mediator, and there are three parties at the table, and out of sight of two of the parties, I coach uh, the third party, 
that would really not fulfill my uh, image and my obligation to be uh, impartial. So I might give conflict coaching uh, advice to all of the parties at the same time if they requested it in the mediation. And they would be simple uh, suggestion, not in-depth education about uh, conflict skills, but just things like talking about the value of not interrupting, talking about the value of substituting and for but, which is the verbal eraser. I'm sure you have listened to people who say, uh, oh yeah, I think your idea is really good, but let me tell you what I think. A better way of doing that is, you know, your idea is really good and I have something else that I'd like to contribute to the solution of the problem. So Uh, I hope that explains that conflict coaching is something that I would do with an individual either, it's it's always actually been by phone or by uh, video conferencing. Uh, But yes, it might arise out of an inquiry about mediation. For instance, I would say maybe one-fifth of the inquiries I get that do not result in an actual mediation, the party that contacts me uh, will say, you know, can you teach me something about how to facilitate a family meeting and how to use conflict resolution skills that will change this into more problem-solving than a win-lose situation? And that is certainly a uh, major source of my conflict coaching um, clients. Okay. Well, we're just about out of time, Jeanette. So can you share with our listeners how they can learn more about Mediate Virginia? Yes, they can uh, look at my website, mediatevirginia.com. They can call me at uh, 703-868-2649 or 703-757-7364. They can email me at the address on the website, and they can look uh, at the website for elder mediation and conflict coaching and click on the links for read more about each of those topics. All right. Well, I want to thank Jeanette Toomey with Mediate Virginia for joining me today. And by the way, if you want to learn more about Aging Matters, best way to do so is to visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com. And you will find when you get to this site that you can access all of the previous Aging Matters radio shows and TV episodes. And you will find that you can access the Aging Matters radio shows on podcast on Apple and Spotify. So be sure to check that out. And if you want to continue to learn about what's upcoming on Aging Matters, you can subscribe to the Aging Matters monthly email newsletter. And that way you can receive updates about the new radio shows and TV episodes. So check that out. Finally, Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Moth Media, You can learn more about that company at inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And as always, remember, 
age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs.